The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. This week on Science for the People, we're taking a look at altruism and the nonprofit industry, and how we can try to optimize our altruistic urges. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Will McGaskill, an associate professor in philosophy at Lincoln College, Oxford, and author of Doing Good Better, How Effective Altruism Can Help You Make a Difference. He also co-founded two nonprofits, 80,000 Hours, which provides research and advice on how people can best make a difference through their career, and Giving What We Can, which encourages people to commit at least 10% of their income to the most effective charities, organizations which help spark the effective altruism movement. Will, welcome to Science for the People. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so as a nutshell for people who have never heard of it, what is effective altruism? So effective altruism is about using your time and money as effectively as possible to make the world a better place and using careful reasoning, high quality evidence and data in order to ensure that your activities do the most good possible. Okay, so... In the book, and I'm just going to jump right in, um, in the book, you outline five key questions of effective altruism, and I do want to talk about each of these. Um, so the first one was, how many people benefit and by how much? What do we mean when we ask that question? Uh, that's looking at, um, you know, when you ask, what's the impact that this has? It's cashing that out in terms of the ultimate impact or benefits to people. So if you can make someone's quality of life better, or if you can extend their life, what if they're having a happy life? These are things that actually contribute to people's well-being. Whereas sometimes when people kind of assess charities and look at their impact, they just look at intermediate metrics. So they say, okay, well, this charity, you know, is able to distribute a textbook for only 50 cents. This is a really effective thing to do. But that's just not enough in order to work out whether the charity is truly effective. We'd need to ask, you know, does distributing textbooks actually make a difference in terms of people's quality of life? Does it actually improve lives? And so that first question is encouraging us to think in terms of the ultimate impact charities have rather than just looking at kind of intermediate metrics. But when we're talking about um, people's quality of life or how many people are benefiting, how do we how do we figure that out? How do we compare the benefit that people might get from different types of charitable interventions? It's certainly difficult to do so, but a lot of progress has been made. And uh, within the health sphere, at least, health economists use this metric uh, that I talk about in the book called the Quality Adjusted Life Year, or QALY. And it's a metric that takes into account these two ways you can provide a health benefit to someone. You can extend someone's life, um, or saving their life in scare quotes, and in general, the more years by which you can extend someone's life, if they still have a good life, uh, the better. So uh, giving someone an extra 20 years of life is better than giving them one. And then a second way in which you can improve someone's life is to increase their quality of life while they are still alive. Uh, you know, curing someone of migraines or curing someone of back pain might not extend their life, uh, but it will improve the quality of life while they are alive. And the quality-adjusted life year takes into account um, both of these aspects and uses survey data to look at how people will trade off uh, living a longer life but with lower health or lower quality um, while alive 
against living a shorter life, but at higher quality. And so, as an example, people tend to rate um, uh, life with blindness at about 50% quality. So that means they'd be indifferent between living uh, one extra year of life fully sighted or two extra years of life but being blind. Um, and using that, you can then look at, among different sorts of programs, how many quality-adjusted life years are being uh, generated or being provided. And that means you can compare different programs in terms of what's the like, total benefit to people of these different programs. Okay, one of the next questions um, is, is this the most effective thing you can do? So what are we talking about with that question? That question encourages us to think about not just making a difference, which is a common slogan, but trying to make the most difference you can. And the reason is this is crucial is because even within uh, you know, effective programs, that is, even within programs that are doing a substantial amount of good, there's a vast discrepancy between the ones that are merely doing a lot of good and the, the ones that are the very best. So, for example, uh, providing free school uniforms in Kenya is a very, you know, it's, a, it's an effective way of improving school attendance and improving educational outcomes. Um, and in fact, if it were a program run in um, a first world country, then, you know, it would really be a quite remarkable uh, impact per dollar. And so if you think, oh, I want to make a difference, you might just want to provide um, free school uniforms. If you're thinking, oh, I want to make the most difference, then you might look around to other things as well. And in fact, you'll find that, um, for example, deworming school children, where many, many school children suffer from intestinal worms, it's extremely common and prevents children going to school. And it's, these are very, very cheap to treat. Uh, you can actually do a hundred times as much as if you were um, providing free school uniforms. So even within two things that are very good, the better one or the best is a hundred times better than the one that's merely very good. So how do we attempt to compare charities, um, especially when they're not necessarily doing this, trying to do the same thing, like getting more children to go to school? Um, I'm thinking something like a natural disaster relief versus an intestinal worm program. How do we tease out which one might be the most effective there? Yeah, I think it definitely gets more difficult. And, uh, you know, we, effective development is about taking a scientific approach, but, you know, this is never going to be a hard science. There's always going to be judgment calls along the way. Uh, and I think when assessing a charity, there's uh, three different things you should look at. One is just how effective is the program that the charity is implementing. Uh, second is um, how good is the team that's, being, that's working on that program. And then finally is just does this actually need more money at all? Um, in the case of natural disaster versus um, AIDS, I think, it's that third question that really um, answers it, where natural disasters just get so much more funding than other sorts of programs, um, especially you know ongoing global health programs like AIDS, tuberculosis, um, uh, neglected tropical diseases. Uh, that it's hard to see how a, like additional funding on top is going to be used very well. Um, but even if you wanted to try and compare the program effectiveness directly. There's still some things you can do. So GiveWell, um, a charity evaluator in the effective altruism space that tries to work out what is the best bang for your buck. During the Haitian earthquake, they you know, made some 
implausible and very generous to, to uh, disaster relief funding um, assumptions, saying, okay, well, supposing that the aid money flowing in as a result of uh, as a result of the Haitian earthquake, suppose that money saved the life of everyone in Haiti who was affected by that earthquake. So this is a very, very implausible assumption. They showed that even if that were the case, it still wouldn't be as effective in terms of cost per life saved as, for example, distributing um, insecticide-treated bed nets uh, in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and so because there's such a great discrepancy in effectiveness between different sorts of charities, that means that even, uh, even very rough kind of estimates or even using these very implausible assumptions, you can show that it just, in many cases, one charity that's focusing on seemingly a very different thing it's just, it's not going to be as good as something else. So this leads me to ask what is probably for a lot of people a really obvious question, which is uh, how do we reconcile effective altruism and the goals with the sort of heartstring pang we get when we, there's a natural disaster and people are suffering and it's a very real sort of media um, event. We're watching people suffer. We can, maybe we know somebody there uh, or have heard of somebody there versus something that's much more kind of abstract, especially mm -hmm. for people living in westernized countries like malaria nets. Yeah, I think a couple of things. So one is, uh, you know, I think the emotional kind of impulse we get when we see a natural disaster and the desire to help, I think that's absolutely terrific. And then the question is just, what exactly do you do with that motivation? Um, and I really want to encourage people to use their ability to kind of reason and reflect, to channel that motivation into the area where it'll do the most good. And in particular, to appreciate that, you know, some disasters get a lot of attention, but ongoing natural disasters like uh, the billion people infected with insect, um, uh, intestinal worms or the 400,000 people who die of malaria each year, they just get a lot less attention. Um, if you feel you're, like you need the kind of emotional kick as well, well, then I think, you know, then kind of looking and being proactive to find what are these most kind of effective areas that I can work on. And then actually just kind of finding out and, um, you know, reading up or looking at pictures of uh, the sorts of, you know, lives people lead and how impoverished they are, the sort of conditions people suffered from and how kind of grave they are. So a few years ago when I was uh, trying to decide where, how much I was going to give over the course of my life, I wanted to make a public commitment. And I was wondering about capping my income at uh, about £20,000 so about $35,000 uh, every year. And, you know, it felt like a big commitment, so I wasn't sure what to do. And I just went online and just started looking through photos of uh, children suffering from uh, these really quite horrific diseases. And I remember one photo in particular was of a child suffering from lymphatic filariasis of the face. And the entire face was kind of badly distorted. And I just thought, okay, yeah, if a single, like, if a single person were benefited, um, didn't have to go through that uh, as a result of my commitment, this would have easily been worth it. And then you know, just looking at the math, I can do this hundreds or thousands of times. And so, you know, I think the emotional, and I did then make that commitment. Um, and so I think the emotional impulse can be, you know, very important. 
But the key is just to use your ability to reason to make sure that that emotional impulse is being tied to what will actually have the most good rather than just what the media has kind of chosen to put in front of our faces. It's a really interesting idea um, and something that I don't know that we talk about often enough, the idea that some charities might be, and maybe this is the wrong word, but overfunded or uh, over-focused yeah. on. And in your book, you talk about certain situations where, in particular with disaster relief, where they just can't use the money that's coming in because there's there's almost too much of it. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, at least relative to other sorts of... Uh other sorts of programs. So, I mean, the J- Japanese, uh, yeah, Japanese earthquake in particular. So the Red Cross explicitly said, we do not want any funding. You know, Japan is the fourth richest economy in the world. We have the resources, uh, to be able to cope with this. Uh, yet the Japanese earthquake in the immediate aftermath, at least, still got the same amount of funding as the Haitian earthquake did even though Haiti was one of the poorest countries in the world, even though the death toll was 10 times as great. And so, yeah, again, this was just something where got a lot of media attention, so a lot of people wanted to help. But, yeah, there was already enough resources there, or more than enough resources to, uh, you know, cope with the disaster. And that means that additional funding's not going to achieve very much, even though it could have achieved a huge amount if it was focusing on something that was less neglected or less well-funded. So uh, how does a person who wants to donate to an effective or neglected charity decide where to donate? I mean, where do you even begin to find information on how well they're funded, how much room they have left for additional funding, how quickly they can uh, utilize that additional money? Like, where do you get this information? Yeah. So for the casual donor, I think the best place to go by far is givewell.org. That's uh, an organization that does extraordinarily in-depth research to try and work out what are the very most effective charities. And they currently recommend four. Uh, one is Against Malaria Foundation that distributes bed nets, uh, Deworm the World and the Sister Samias' Control Initiative. Uh, they both deworm school children. Um, and then Give Directly that simply transfers cash to the very poorest people in the world. Um, it's kind of surprising that this could be so effective, but it's uh, got an awful lot of evidence behind it showing it really improves people's lives. Uh, and so I think for the casual donor, the best thing is just to go with those recommendations. If you don't want to do that and uh, want to kind of do your own research, then it's definitely an uphill struggle because charities rarely provide the sort of information you really need. Uh, but the things you want to be looking at are how effective is the program um, that it's operating uh, in terms of how much does the thing cost and how's that translating to improvements of people's lives? Um, how good is the team? How transparent is the organization? How well do you think this program is being implemented? And then, yeah, finally, just how, how much does this charity actually need more money? Um, even if a charity has been exceptionally effective in the past, then that's not to say that additional donations are going to be equally as effective. Um, and there, you know, phone up the charities, start asking tough questions. I think it'd be good for the uh, nonprofit sector as a whole if we had more people kind of doing proactive research like that to really assess whether what their money is going to be used to do. Well, uh, how transparent are charitable organizations? I mean, I guess both how transparent are they with the data that they have and how much data do they actually have about their own effectiveness? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, in both cases, the answer is very little, I think. Um, uh, in terms of transparency, it's actually even just very difficult to work, find out often what a charity does. I mean, the most basic um, facts. So Holden Karnowski, one of the co-founders of GiveWell, when he kind of first started this, he was phoning up different charities and asking what he thought of as pretty basic questions. What do you do? What will additional money be used for? Is there any evidence um, that this program works? And uh, he was asking that because he got a bit tired of only ever seeing these kind of glossy leaflets with smiling children um, that w weren't really telling him anything. Uh, but anyway, the charity, one of the charities he talked to was so surprised by this that they fund, they phoned his employer at the time and tried to get him fired um, oh, because wow. they, because they thought he must have been a spy for another charity. <laughs> um, really, he just wanted to know how his money was going to be spent. Um, so it's actually very rare. Similarly with data as well. Um, I mean, there's now slowly be getting, becoming a move where charities will start to do monitoring and evaluation of their programs and um, uh, maybe scale up the ones that are doing better and um, decrease the funding for programs that are doing worse. Um, but it's still very rare for the charity to independently look at, okay, how can I, um, uh, you know, what are all the programs I could be working on? What are the ones that are neglected yet? have a great evidence behind them, and then actively choose to focus on them. Um, and very rare indeed that a charity would say, okay, the data's come in, now I'm just going to stop what I'm doing. So Tom's Shoes, for example, um, very kind of famous social enterprise and uh, where you buy a pair of shoes for yourself and some children get some shoes. Um, there, they, you know, they run studies and children, they, you know, they like the shoes, they kind of enjoy them, but they're not like leading to, you know, any other sorts of improvements. It seems in uh, their quality of life. Often they like sell the shoes as well. I think, um, but uh, not leading to any other sorts of improvements. And you might think, okay, well, this program isn't achieving what we're setting out to achieve. So we should actually just shut it down and do something completely different. I've never ever seen that happen in the charity sector, and I think that's a real shame. Um, and I think it's why you get these such, such discrepancies in effectiveness because. Unlike in the for-profit sector, where if a you know business just isn't very good at what it's doing, then it'll just have to shut down because it won't get revenue. Um, a non-profit can be not very good at what it's doing, but good at being able to fundraise and will be able to just keep operating indefinitely. So bad charities just don't die in the same way that um, bad companies do. And that's why I think we as donors have to kind of go the extra mile to really try and get that data and, you know, incentivize charities to be much more transparent and collecting a lot more information about what they're doing. What about um, medical and science research? Where would that fit into an effective altruism worldview? You know, arguably the thing that has done the most good over the last two centuries is our huge advances, advances in medicine, things like development of antibiotics, germ theory, vaccination. Um, mm -hmm. And a lot of these ideas come at the tail end of a lot of just basic curiosity-driven general research that didn't necessarily have an application or a use case at the time. Yeah, so I think... Um Funding kind of basic research and um, innovation in general is just this really good thing. Um, the 
benefits to kind of society as a whole. Um, this has been looked into by economists, and the benefits of society as a whole are just far, far beyond any sort of the benefits that the people actually doing this research should recoup. And that means that it's radically underfunded by the market. Uh, and so it's a great um, opportunity for doing a lot of good through donations. Uh, then the question is, yeah, just how good is this in particular? And then we're going to come up against this difficult question of trying to quantify um, uh, this much more kind of speculative but potentially very high payoff thing with the kind of much more concrete, um, measurable ways of doing good. Uh, and I think it's going to be at least unclear. Um, I think there's, you know, is a very strong case for trying to fund especially kind of biomedical research, um, which has led to such significant improvements in people's lives over the last hundred years, um, and plausibly other forms of research as well. But it's going to be one of those cases where uh, the judgments you make are going to involve a lot of judgment calls. It's not going to be kind of hard and fast scientific answer. Where is the the balance between measuring and expecting effectiveness from a charity, but also allowing for innovation? Um, the effective altruism system seems to lean heavily on favoring large, established, sort of well-researched programs. So how does a potentially genuinely good idea gain traction enough to start even measuring success? Yeah, I think um, I think more and more we'd like to, you know, fund what are potentially very promising new programs and uh you know especially if they're and give well in fact has made some grants in this area so it advises a foundation called good ventures that um you know do and they fund things that are very early stage but are going to run a potentially very promising program and do a high quality randomized control trial to assess how good it is because they're looking for you know what are charities that are you know things that they could potentially recommend in the future I think at the moment, um, you know, talking in broad brush strokes, uh, given that there are these programs that have been around for so long that are still chronically underfunded, uh, I feel like the first thing we should do is just make sure that those are fully funded. Like it's bizarre that this, you're still, you, we still are able to, um, pay to distribute bed nets and that's not saturated or, pay to deworm children, that isn't just this fully funded thing. So I think you can, you know, and these were innovations like the deworming drugs were developed in the 50s. And I think sometimes in the nonprofit space, um, people can get seduced by wanting to do a new kind of innovative or gimmicky thing or some new kind of magic bullet. Whereas actually sometimes it's just boring things that we've known about for decades that literally just need more funding. Uh, so I think... At the moment, there's just a ton of stuff that we know works really well, and I'd just like to see more money going into that. But then after that point, then, uh, yeah, I think we need to be trying to find what are the next best things. And I think funding the sort of work that the Poverty Action Lab and Innovations for Poverty Action do, where they're trying to find these new awesome programs, and they're doing kind of high-quality tests to work out you know, just how good are they. Um, then I think, again, that's going to be a very good use of funds. While I was reading the book, I was struck 
by how often I was thinking about the concept of triage in uh, mm-hmm. in a medical profession. So, uh, how do you if everybody's injured, how do you decide who to help first? It it's yeah. one of those sort of uncomfortable. Uh, things to think about sometimes. And I think to some extent, uh, the effect of altruism movement and the idea of who deserves my money more is a, is a really hard thing to think about because you have to ask some potentially uh, uncomfortable questions. <laughs> That's exactly right. Uh, I think, you know, sometimes people say, oh, well, we should just fund everything or, um, uh, oh, well, I'll just, you know, fund the first thing that, uh, gets presented to me but really the situation we are in and it is a very uncomfortable it's very unpleasant to think about is just like a doctor in a wartime situation engaging in triage because there are just far more people um in fact literally billions of people who could be beneficiaries of your actions and you can't help them all and so you need to answer these hard questions about who are you going to help and who who's going to have to be left for another time um and in the case of, you know, a battlefield doctor engaging in triage, if that person just thought, just threw up their hands and said, okay, I'm just going to treat whoever first I first see, or, okay, I'm just not going to make any comparisons because it's too difficult, you know, that would be a really bad decision. More lives would be lost, fewer people would be helped than if you engaged in this, you know, what can seem what can seem cold and calculating, but is like actually arising from, you know, deep compassion process of trying to assess different cases and thinking, okay, where am I able to have the biggest impact? So this is a highly sort of speculative, almost meta question. So just, you know, we're, go, go with me here. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> um, is effective altruism at risk for feedback loops like the ones we sometimes see in finance? I mean, do the ideas take into account the effect the ideas themselves will have if lots of people start using them? Yeah, there's definitely going to be some changes as the movement really starts to grow, uh, where more and more it becomes... Uh, you know, you have to answer these coordination questions of what if everyone did this. Uh, so when it's, you know, one of the questions I address in the book is about thinking on the margin. So uh, thinking, okay, given how everyone else is acting, what ought I to do where that might play out as given the fact that so many people are already funding this disaster, I should do something else. Um, but then, you know, as more and more people are doing this, that means that we've got to more think about as an entire community of people, what ought we to be doing? And so now, for example, when GiveWell recommends charities, um, uh, it suggests an allocation of funding for each person to donate to uh, different charities. Because if everyone was like, okay, against Malaria Foundation, that's number one, so I'm just going to fund that, then you would get this effect where against Malaria Foundation gets too much money relative to how much D1 the world should have got, for example. Uh, so we, yeah, we're going to need to start addressing questions like that more. Similarly, in the case of career choice, so eight thousand hours recommends different careers. Um, the, you know, once you're thinking about a whole community of people, then uh, what careers people should pursue will depend on what careers other people are pursuing, and there can be, you know, great benefits to having people in a diverse variety of careers able to you know, talk about what they learned and adding skills to kind of community. 
And so, yeah, again, we've got a, it's another question that kind of we've got to address. I want to go back to the idea of um, failure for a second. Uh, do you think that there is, um, it sounds like there seems to be anyway, a, an issue with charities kind of not admitting that they're not effective or not being able to admit that maybe their ideas have, have failed in some way. Um, is Are there charities out there or groups out there that have um, sort of acknowledged their failure and shut down or changed gears or changed tack after this? Um, I think it's a very small number. Uh, I mean, one case, and this is what I lead with in the book, is the play pump, which was heralded as this, you know, incredibly amazing new innovation. Bill Clinton called it a wonderful invention. Uh, and it got about $18 million in funding. And it was a, a med- children's merry-go-round that would pump clean water to uh, the community in a village. And uh, people absolutely loved it because it seemed to harness the power of the children's play to provide this benefit. Um, but it was actually a, a complete disaster. Um, ch- the children would get very tired. They'd often fall off. They'd vomit. They'd break limbs. Um, it was the elderly women of the village that would have to pump this thing. Um, and it was very expensive. It was about three times the cost of a normal hand pump. It would pump less water. It would break more often. And a couple of um, uh, investigations um, showed that to be the case. And there, there really was. So the Case Foundation had been a major investor in the play pump. And they thankfully just very publicly said, yep, okay, we made a mistake on this one. Um, we just shouldn't have ever funded this. And now we're kind of withdrawing our funding. And that's pretty rare, actually, but that is an example. And even in that case, the people who run Play Pumps International, you know, it, the charity still continues. It's much, much smaller than it was, um, but it does still keep going, even despite the evidence that came to light. And so I actually think that examples of charities that just said, yep, we're no longer necessary, so we're just going to shut down, are just very rare. Um, actually, another example that I find quite funny is um, there's a charity in London called Scots Care, I think it's called. And it provides uh, help for Scottish homeless people, not other sorts of Scot- homeless people, only Scottish homeless people in London. And the reason for this is that after the um, personal union in the early 17th century in uh, the United Kingdom, so when Scotland and England had the same monarch, uh, for, you know, 300 years ago, there was a lot of migration of Scots to London and they weren't able to get welfare support. Uh, and so there was actually this like great need. Scot- Scots in London were a real kind of uh, underprivileged, particularly underprivileged group. And so this charity was set up. But then 300 years later, things are kind of different. <laughs> There's not really this distinction between Scots, uh, Scottish people and English people uh, with respect to homelessness in London. But yet this charity just still keeps going. And I think, you know, that's just a kind of great example of how there's just not this incentive within the charitable sector for uh, charities just to shut down. They just are going to want to keep going. And as long as they can keep fundraising, then they're going to be able to do that. Um, so sadly, there's actually just not that many examples, I think, of charities saying, yep, yeah, we should just stop and do something else. So is part of 
taking in and being an unaffect sorry an effective altruist uh, sort of not getting too attached to the specific charities you support and being able to change that support or withdraw it and put it somewhere else if evidence surfaces because we we do tend to get really attached to the charities that we support either because we have a personal connection to them or we've just invested a lot of time and effort and dollars into supporting them and it's hard after you know five years of, of giving money regularly to find out that that money has maybe done some harm that that's really hard to yeah. reconcile yeah no i think that's um you know one of the just psychologically difficult things about um trying to do as you know as much good as you can does mean that you've got to be willing to change your mind you've got to be willing to change your actions on the basis of evidence um i found it so i'd been giving to care international and oxfam um before i started doing research into what the most effective charities are and you know i concluded that this wasn't the best place for me to give my money and it was pretty hard for me to phone up and cancel these direct debits because you know i wanted to say well i still think you're doing really great work i think you're doing a lot of stuff that's um going to do a lot to make the world better but i don't think you're the best use of money and just morally speaking that's what i've got to go for um and i think uh yeah i just think that's a really hard thing to do but i think you know if we really want to help other people as much as possible that's something we've got to live with I do want to talk about 80,000 hours because this is something that probably uh, for people who really want to make a difference in the world, um, the idea of uh, dedicating their life to a specific cause, working in a nonprofit or going somewhere and sort of spending a, a life as a volunteer um, can be an attractive idea. But part of the 80,000 hour uh, premise is that in a lot of cases, you might be able to do more good uh, in an entirely different way. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that project? Yeah, so 80,000 Hours is about reviewing and recommending careers that will enable people to have the biggest social impact they can. And uh, we set this up because uh, me and the co-founder, Ben Todd, were, you know, we were wanting to know what should we do to make a big difference with our lives. And there's basically no information out there. The only kind of idea was, oh, if you want to do good, you should work in the nonprofit sector. But I think there's just a, you know, that's this slogan, but I think the number of problems with it as an idea. Um, one is, as we've said, just very many nonprofits just actually achieve very little. So you'd work in that organization and just not do very much. Um, another, though, is just that if you're trying to think about uh, how much, how to do the most good you can over the course of your whole life. The first jobs you should be taking are those that really set you up to have a bigger impact later on. Things that build your skills, your network, your credentials, rather than just immediately trying to have an impact. At least that will often be the case. And the sort of training you get in the nonprofit sector, the sort of network credentials, the doors that are opened, you know, that's just generally speaking, uh, not going to be as good as, um, working in well, academia can be one, or research can be one, but then also kind of the for-profit sector where you can build up skills in um, marketing or HR or um, operations or coding, lots of different areas that you can then apply to things where you'll have a really big impact. And then the final thing is uh, that this kind of slogan only really looks at the impact your labor can make 
Whereas I think there's a number of ways you can have a big difference. So one is by working for an effective organization for sure. But then you can also do a lot of good as an advocate. Um, so Martin Luther King did not work for the charity. Um, but you can have a position in society that you can advocate for important causes. Um, and then finally, you can do good through your donations as well. And uh, this is always the idea that the media really likes to hook on to because it's, um, I think, the most attention-grabbing. But you can work for, in a lucrative career and then, you know, the people who pursue this path give something like 50% of their income uh, to really effective charities. And so deliberately doing good through donations rather than through your ability to work for um, an effective, an effective charity. So how do you provide this type of advice? If someone comes to you and says, I really want to make a difference in the world, is it better for me to be a doctor? Is it better for me to get into finance? Is it better for me to try and become a start a nonprofit? Like where, where do you kind of tease out some of that or make some of those decisions? Yeah. So we have kind of three aspects to what we provide. One is, um, kind of uh, stuff we've got online. So there we have this guide. We provide a framework we, um, for thinking about your career decisions. We have a career recommender quiz. Uh, so you can go on and just takes, you know, only answering seven questions, but we'll then make some suggestions about, uh, you know, very high impact careers that you could pursue on the basis of we've done dozens and dozens of career reviews. Um, then also a kind of how to choose app as well so that, if you're working through a particular decision, this is a kind of automated process that can uh, help you really clarify that decision and um, help kind of improve the outcome of that decision. So that's all the online stuff. So we've got a wealth of information on there. Um, then we do some amount of one-on-one -on -one coaching as well. So for people who are still unsure after that process, um, can talk to us one-on-one -on -one and we'll... Uh, you know, again, kind of work through the decision, provide what we think is the best advice, often give kind of new options available to people that um, they might not have thought of before. Uh, and then finally, we're kind of building a community of people around this idea as well. So um, if you think, okay, well, I think actually the best thing for me to do at the moment is postgraduate study in economics, then we can say, okay, well, we'll connect you to some people who've are either doing this or have gone through this and have then gone on to do other things so they can know what sort of courses you should be applying for uh, and where, um, uh, and then kind of what are your options kind of after that, what other things should be do you be doing at right at the moment. So we've got these kind of three aspects of the online stuff, one-on-one -on -one coaching, and then this community of mentors. And that's how we're trying to help people. You know, we really want, when someone comes and says, okay, I want to make a difference, we want it to be as easy to be able to follow through on that intention as when someone says, okay, I want to work in consulting and um, the kind of big consulting firms have just made it so easy for people to go apply and um, you know exactly what you're doing. We want it to become as concrete as that. So just before we sign off, um, if someone has listened to the show and maybe this is the first time they've ever heard about effective altruism and they're interested in maybe using their donation money better or picking better charities or even looking at maybe they've never donated before and they're just at the point in their life where they can make those donations for the first time, where should they go? What's the first step? Yeah, I think depending on what exactly they're looking for. So if you're looking for really effective charities to donate to, go to givewell.org. They do outstanding, exceptionally in-depth research on this question. 
if you're wondering about using your time, potentially have a career decision, then 80,000hours.org is the place to go. If you're really feeling motivated, you think you might want to make a larger commitment, um, start donating a percentage of your income, uh, givingwhatwecan.org is the place to go. Uh, and if you want just general information, want to sign up to the newsletter, get a free chapter of the book as well, you can do that on effectivealtruism.org. Will, thanks so much for joining me today. Really interesting. Thanks so much for having me. If you want to learn more about Will McGaskill, his work or his book, Doing Good Better, How Effective Altruism Can Help You Make a Difference, you should check out his website, which you can find at williammcaskill.com. And we'll make sure to put that link on our show notes on our website, which is scienceforthepeople.ca. Science for the People is a weekly radio show exploring everyday life from a scientific perspective. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+, or to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. Welcome back to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Brendan Rigby. Brendan is an education specialist currently completing a PhD at the University of Melbourne's Graduate School of Education. Brendan is studying the literacy practices of out-of-school children in Ghana and is a consultant for Victorian Curriculum and Assessment Authority, Plan International, and UNICEF. Formerly, Brendan was an education officer with UNICEF in Ghana and director of venture support for Start Some Good. Welcome, Brendan. Thanks for having me, Rochelle. One of the things I wanted to talk about today was volunteerism. So could you maybe start by telling us what is volunteerism for people who have maybe never heard that word before? Volunteerism is just a mashup of volunteering and tourism. But essentially what it indicates is um, opportunities for particularly young people when they travel overseas to volunteer at a charity or a non-for-profit in the country that they're traveling within. So they give an opportunity to give some time back, to give some skills over and to generally try and make a difference while they're traveling. Okay, so uh, can you give us some examples of what volunteerism programs look like? What kind of projects do volunteerists typically work on? So there's two pretty typical programs that you'll find um, out there. And this is a really kind of good checklist to have if you are thinking about volunteering overseas and you don't want to go down the volunteerism route. Um, If an organization or a travel company is offering you A, the chance to volunteer in an orphanage or B, the chance to volunteer as an English teacher, they're your two red flags and they're the two type of programs that you see most often offered by travel companies and organizations. So uh, can you talk a little bit about why those are red flags? What, I mean, you know, volunteering in an orphanage sounds like a pretty good thing to do, but it seems like maybe that's not the case in some of these volunteerism programs. The best question to ask yourself, uh, particularly if it's a volunteer program that is going to place you in an orphanage, is would I be allowed to do this in my home country? So if I'm an Australian and I'm looking in Cambodia for a volunteer position and there's an orphanage that's offering me a three-week program where I get to play and and look after uh, quote-unquote orphans, am I allowed to do that in Australia? No. Would you be allowed to uh, work in an orphanage or a similar institution in Australia without any accreditation, without any police background checks, with any skills? No, you would not. So I think that's kind of like the first measure stick to use when thinking about this is, can I do it in my home country? Uh, 
A second thing to think about, particularly in a country, say, like Cambodia, is that unfortunately, because there is such a high demand for these type of programs, uh, that will necessarily generate um, companies that try to meet that demand because the supply is not necessarily there, which means that orphanages are being created which are not legitimate orphanages where the children are not legitimate orphans uh, you know in Cambodia we have a lot of different unfortunate cases of children who are who are being given over to orphanages by the parents freely because there's a incentive for the parents to make money from this venture in return for their children being in this orphanage um, those cases are, are not that isolated actually and particularly in countries like Cambodia and then I think the third thing to think about, particularly with orphanages, um, is the type of impact that you're having. So, look, even if you are skilled and qualified to do it, maybe you have a degree in social work and you feel like you want to just get a little bit of experience and this is a good way for you to do that. Even if you have that, the impact that you've got to make is necessar- not necessarily positive and it might, in fact, be negative because you are often there for only two to three weeks. It's such a short amount of time that you're not going to really make much of a difference, to be honest. And you may also be taking away, for example, jobs in that industry. Um, you know, the, the type of work that could be done in a legitimate orphanage could probably be done by a Cambodian, for example. Um, so I think they're the three things to really consider when thinking about orphanages in particular. What about teaching English? Why would that pop up as a red flag? Yeah, look, I'm, I'm a little bit biased when it comes to this because I am a, a professional and qualified teacher. So when I see young 18, 19 year olds volunteering as an English teacher, it really kind of gets to the core of me as a teacher because of how many years I spent studying and then how many years I spent training to be a teacher. Again, it's the same as uh, the orphanage situation where if you don't have the skills, if you don't have the accreditation, if you don't have the experience um, and you wouldn't be allowed to do that in your home country, then you probably shouldn't do it abroad. You mentioned that you might be taking a job from somebody who could really use the actual job. And this seems to come up repeatedly when you look more in depth into some volunteerism um, criticisms, that a lot of the work that um, volunteerists tend to do is uh, quite often unskilled labor, which is work that could definitely be done by pretty much anybody in the local area. So is, is that also a concern? I mean, outside things like orphanage work or teaching English, because it seems like a lot of the volunteerism projects also are building something, fixing something. That's right. It's what I forgot to mention too. Um, Digging wells is a really good example of another volunteerism project that foreigners often go for and that companies and organizations market. Um, There's no doubt that in a lot of these communities abroad, there is a need for a new well, that there is a need for a new school building, but it does not require the unskilled labor of foreigners to dig the well to construct the school. But the incentive is there for all parties. You know, the incentive is there for those who are paying for the volunteerism opportunity um, because it does speak to their need to make a difference, to, to do some good while they're traveling. The, the incentive is there for the community too. You know, if, if a company comes to them and say, look, we're going to market a particular opportunity to foreigners to come in and build your new school building, we'll give you, you know, maybe they'll get a percentage of of the profits from this company um, for that particular project. Maybe they won't, but you know, if, if a bunch of foreigners are going to come in and do the construction when um, the local community doesn't have to, who would say no to that? I, I mean, I wouldn't. <laughs> um, 
so the incentive is there, you know, for for all parties. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't. But at the same time, I don't think you're necess- It's a little bit more difficult, and I think you'd have to do some hardcore research into this, in into looking whether or not, um, particularly around construction, if you are taking away um, jobs, uh, if if it is um, kind of disrupting and disturbing the local labor market. Um, perhaps there are studies out there, but I can imagine that it does have an effect. And um, unfortunately, I, I think the responsibility often gets put onto the volunteers themselves and I think they have to have some sort of responsibility, but I don't think we can continue to blame them. They do cop a lot of blame in um, the in the in blog posts, in 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 podcast programs, in just general conversations about this. But I think if we blame them too much, then you turn people off. You know, you don't really don't want to turn people off um, volunteering, in particular. You don't want to turn people off trying to make good on their good intentions. Um, it's about trying to find ways to educate and to channel those efforts into projects and activities that that really do make an effective impact. I think who we really need to hold responsible are the tour companies themselves that offer this because I think they're quite well aware of what they're doing and who they're taking advantage of and, um, you know, what the bottom line is for them. So... uh when we talk about ethical volunteering, um, what it, what does that look like? What types of projects or um, uh, programs for somebody who is interested in doing some volunteer work while they're traveling? What do those look like, and, and what types of projects should they maybe be looking more towards? I think I think if you're planning to travel overseas and you want to do some volunteering while you're traveling, my piece of advice is to not volunteer. There are companies who are starting to try and change the script a bit and offer different sorts of activities to those who want to volunteer. And there's a, a new concept that's popping up called learning service. And that's trying to replace the model of volunteerism. And it's not offering participants the chance to volunteer. It's offering participants the chance to learn. Um, it's offering them the chance to kind of more deeply engage in the communities and the country that they're traveling through, um, through education programs, through cross-cultural exchange. And I think that's a much more effective approach. And I really love that idea of, of learning and of education and of cultural exchange, because really that's what it should be about. You shouldn't have the mindset of coming into a country and, and trying to help in really perhaps negative ways like you do through volunteerism. But if you come with an open mind and you want to more deeply engage with people and with the culture and with the histories and with the issues, then you can take that information and go back to your home country and then explore further ways to, if you want to make a career out of it, or if you want to further volunteer in your home country, or if you want to do further study, there are those options open to you. So I really like that idea of learning service and like I said, there are a few companies and organizations trying to do this now, but they are in the minority for sure. So my advice is don't volunteer. I know that's a little bit negative and um, a little bit arbitrary, but it's so difficult to tell what is a good volunteer organization abroad. You know, when you don't know the country, you know, you can be in Cambodia, you just arrived there, maybe your first time there, you don't know the country, you don't know what to look for. You're not prepared to assess whether or not a volunteer organization is a good organization or a bad organization. And although there are resources out there that help you do that, it's really difficult. Um, it's really difficult. So that's why I believe that you should just not do it. You shouldn't travel to a country and then try and find a volunteer opportunity. And even if you're in your home country, even if you're in Australia and you're looking online for volunteer opportunities and you're taking your time to try and plan and try and assess and you're sending out emails and getting replies and you're having conversations with organizations, even then it's quite tricky because um, you can't get beyond the webpage. You can't really get beyond what is told to you. You can't necessarily go behind the curtain and see how it all really works. What about things like um, uh, conservation tourism? 
uh, volunteer programs. So things like um, volunteering at a conservation space in somewhere like Africa or in uh, South Africa. It depends what the conservation organization is offering to the volunteers. So it depends what type of activities they're saying that you're going to engage in. Um, and again, it's, it's about the organization itself and who they are and, um, you know, whether they're registered in the country, uh, whether they have proper governance structures, you know, do they have a board who, who, uh, oversees the, the managing director and, and, and kind of keeps all those checks and balances for the organization, make sure that they're fulfilling their mandate and they're not, um, Conducting fraud and this and that, you know, they have all those structures in place because often non-profit organizations don't have those structures in place. You know, you can um, in countries like Cambodia and perhaps even South Africa. I don't, I'm not sure about South Africa, but it's very easy to start non-profit organizations. There's very little legwork and very little processes or protocols that you have to put into place. And then it's just a matter of doing all the window dressing for your organization to make it look legitimate. So it's, it's really hard to get behind that curtain, as I said before. Conservation, look, if, if that means, you know, going on uh, tours where you're just being shown around a conservation park and you're being given kind of, you know, workshops and, and education lessons about um, conservation efforts and about the, the history of the park and about um, do's and don'ts and about how you can, you know, kind of help, you know, don't buy ivory from China, things like this. Sure, I can, I can see um, the positives in that. But if they're trying to get you to do other activities, which might include a bit of you know poverty tourism which is a kind of a, a sub-genre of volunteerism i guess you know where they they might give you a day where they're going to take you you know into the slums of um, um or the, the poorer non-white areas of say cape town or one of the other south african cities and you know you get you get shown around these areas and you take pictures and you get told about um you know the different socioeconomic issues that the communities are facing um then that's a red flag so if you're maybe the other type of um, volunteer and your heart's really set on doing some volunteer development work, uh, more long term. What types of projects or programs are you looking for in order to start engaging with them to do more long term development work? I think it's always good to start at home. And, and I don't necessarily like the um, phrase charity begins at home, but I, I think we can change that and say volunteering begins at home. And I really believe that you should first look to do some volunteering in your home country if you haven't already, um, because that will give you a good insight into how non-for-profit organizations are run, what type of programs they do, how they set up their programs, what are fundraising issues, what are funding issues. And you kind of get a really good look at how those organizations operate as a volunteer, because often not-for-profits need volunteers and they need interns because they just don't have the resources to have full um, HR um, staffing in place like private sector companies do. So you get, you get a really good insight into how it all works and you get given a lot of often responsibility and you get pulled in different directions to do different activities and that experience can really help inform what you do from there and perhaps you do then want to take your career into the aid and development sector or into the non-profit sector in your home country and then you can start looking abroad and because then you you have a little bit more insight into what a volunteering placement looks like what is expected of you what non-for-profits look like what type of work they do what you should be on the lookout for and i think your site should always be turned to the more official national level programs like your peace corps in the u.s like your avi in australia like your voluntary services overseas organization in the uk 
because they've been doing this for a long time. You know, the Australian Volunteers International, I believe, was founded in 1951. So they've been doing this for a lot of time. They have a lot of institutional knowledge. They have a lot of expertise in, in how to work with partner organizations overseas and how to support you as a volunteer and in, in how to fulfill your needs. So that would be my advice, kind of like a two-step program. Volunteer at home first, get exposure and experience volunteering for a nonprofit in your home country. And then if you still are keen to do it overseas, go through one of the bigger national programs that have the support structures, that have the infrastructure, that have the expertise and experience uh, in volunteering. So kind of a walk before you run approach. Walk before you run or crawl before you walk. <laughs> Tiptoe. Let's go, let's go back. Yeah, let's go back. Yeah. Um, I'm curious as well. What about volunteering for a disaster relief scenarios? So, um, some there's a, a natural disaster somewhere. The Red Cross pumps in, and then sometimes they get volunteers coming in to help support uh, what's going on. Uh, some of the relief efforts that are going on is is that a good way to go if you if you're able to volunteer your time? If you're the kind of person who can kind of like drop everything in life, jump on a plane, and head over, or is that something that maybe is more problematic than helpful? No. That's that's even I think I yeah I probably think that's even more harmful than your everyday white bread volunteerism projects because particularly if it's overseas particularly if it's a disaster context a disaster context abroad um, say it's Nepal you know with the recent earthquakes in Nepal and you've never been to the country but you're compelled to help Nepal is a really cool country it's beautiful it's you've always wanted to travel there so you hop on a plane and go over there and you try and pick up some volunteer work with Red Cross or with Save the Children or Plan International that's a big no, no. Um, I, I don't know if that can be justified by any means or measure. It's You've got the same issues with volunteerism in terms of skills and expertise. Um, you have the same problem in terms of legitimacy and the legitimacy of organizations. You know, unfortunately, in disaster contexts uh, in, in various countries, you do have not-for-profits that just suddenly appear out of the ground. Um, they come from nowhere and they can prey on the affected people. They can prey on the affected population. Um, so I just don't think that should be ever done. And I have no advice about that because I would never recommend it. Your advice <laughs> I mean, is don't. <laughs> my advice is don't. Um, you know, unless, again, you want to work in the humanitarian and disaster context professionally, there's a lot of different ways you can go about getting experience and building up your skills. You know, you can go and do postgraduate degrees and studies in this. You can do professional trainings and workshops with organizations who offer different things. So, for example, in Australia, we have an organization called Red R, and they send professional experienced volunteers into disaster and relief contexts. But they also offer trainings for people who are interested in upskilling and and getting a bit of training in this sector. And then you get that training, then perhaps you should, again, volunteer for an organization in your home country, you know, volunteer um, for an organization that does work in disaster and relief contexts. So you can kind of, again, get behind the curtain and get that experience and insight into how that organization works and then build your experience and up. And look, eventually you're going to have to go into a disaster and relief context with little or no experience. I, I think that's, um, that's something you have to take for granted, but you can do a lot to prepare yourself to be as ready as possible to do that. It's not something that you should just do on a whim um, because you feel compelled to help. It should be, if you're serious, part of a career plan and part of um, an effort for you to professionalize yourself and get ready to work in that sector. Brendan, thanks so much. Uh, really interesting topic. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Rochelle. And if you'd like to learn more about Brendan Rigby, ethical volunteering, or other development topics, uh, we've got links to get you started on the show notes for this episode, which you can find at scienceforthepeople.ca. And since you're there, do also click the links to our Facebook page, our Twitter feed, and our Patreon, where you can interact with the Science for the People team and support the show. 
On our website, you can also download and listen to all of our past episodes, leave a comment with your thoughts on any episode, and send us some feedback. You can also click over to us on iTunes, where you can subscribe to the show and, if so inclined, leave a review. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders. Ryan Bromsgrove is our promotions manager. Our social media manager is Chelsea Butler. K.O. Myers updates our website. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. Ed Haynes is our guest coordinator. We get research help from Josh Witten. The show is edited by K.O. Myers and Ryan Bromsgrove. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Rochelle Saunders, Marie-Claire Shanahan, and me, Desiree Shell. Desiree Shell.